Good morning, Four Oaks. Paul Gilbert, so glad that you are here. If we don't know each other, lead pastor here, whether you're in person, online, um, thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Let me just follow up one thing um, that Jackson said. You know, it's obviously been um, quite the last 12 months in the life of our, our country, the world, the church at large. And we've had to talk about a lot of things and sort through a lot of issues. But one of the things, by the grace of God, that just hasn't um, had to be um, just a real point of, of, of talking together as a family is just in the area of generosity, and both in provision, financial provision, and in um, serving. Let me just say, Four Oaks, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say I'm proud of you. I'm, I boast to the Lord, okay, on your behalf, and just say thank you, thank you for your incredible generosity um, this past season, where so many churches, ministries are really struggling. God has just graced you with the gift of giving, so thank you for that. Um, not just with your finances, but serving, making sure things happen in children's ministry and worship and tech and all the stuff that happens around here on a Sunday morning. Just thank you by the grace of God. Um, he's really provided for us, and it's just, it, it encourages my heart. So with that said, open your Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are right at the sort of the beginning here of our series through this letter that we've entitled Order in the House. How are we called to live as God's people in the local church? How are we called to be the family of God? Which might seem to you to be sort of a shocking question. Maybe you've never even considered that, but it's something that's really on Paul's heart and mind. Now, as we think about where we're going this morning, I'm, I'm reminded of a story when, when Susan and I were first married. We have been married 28 years. And for those of you who are married or have been married, you know what a massive adjustment those first few years can be when, when your wife realizes who she's living with for the very first time. And I remember Susan went and bought um, wherever you shop in the early 90s, but wherever that place is, I don't know, American Eagle, Limited, I don't know, whatever it is. She went and shopped and bought this nice white linen blouse. And of course, she um, put it in the, the laundry and send it through. And, and I was on the receiving end of this. And she came in one day, was horrified to find me taking that blouse and using it to clean my golf clubs. Okay. Um, and, and she, she was so dumbfounded by what she was observing. She called her mom and she says, mom, what, what is up with this? Is this normal kind of behavior? And her mom assured her, yes, yes, this is what men do. Um, they take beautiful things, they use them in the wrong way, and in the process, destroy them. Okay, so, so congratulations, welcome to reality. And in a lot of ways, that's what we have going on in the book of Timothy and in this passage this morning. You see, there were certain men who were, we find out later, elders um, in this church in Ephesus that were called to shepherd and faithfully minister the word of God to the people of God there in Ephesus. But what we find is that they were taking this beautiful thing, the Word of God, which is infallible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is breathed out by God Himself, and they were taking this beautiful Word but doing horrible things with it, misusing it, cleaning their spiritual golf club, so to speak. And in the process, they were destroying spiritual lives. 
Now understand that this was not an outright um, denunciation of the gospel. Okay, And by the way, that's not how false teachers usually operate. They know if they come right out and say what they're really thinking or what they really believe, that they'll be sort of summarily dismissed and for good reason. And so things are always put in this speculative, hmm, did, did, did God really say? Or you know, I wonder when Paul wrote that, if that's what he really had in mind. There can be sort of this speculative kind of thing going on. And that's what was happening in the church in Ephesus. We saw this last week. It was not an outright denial of the gospel. They just smothered the gospel, smothered it with speculations and conspiracies and genealogies and conjecture, um, building up whole storylines behind passages in the Old Testament and really impressing it upon people. You know, if you're really spiritual, you're going to understand this in this specific way too. And all it did was cause division and destroy people's lives. It was a case study in how not to use the word of God. But Paul anticipates what the next question is going to be from this young church as they're listening to this letter being written. They're, they're going to naturally ask, We understand that, Paul, but if the Word of God is not to be used in that way, then how is it to be used? What what is its purpose? How How are we to rightly handle it? And that's where Paul is going to shift our discussion this morning. And so we're going to be in 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8. We're going to read through verse 11. And if you're able and willing to stand, I'm going to invite you to do so. And just so you know that this is not like a a religious thing, like we think we're holier or this is more sacred if we stand and do this. It's just a reminder us, Four Oaks, it's just a reminder that we don't come to God's Word judging it. We come to God's Word letting it judge us. We stand under its authority. We let it speak to us, and we are just symbolically saying, Lord, we are here as your people Speak to us through your scriptures. So 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8, you can follow along on the screen as well. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, what we have here is your very word. And we are asking this morning that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. We freely confess, Lord, apart from your help, from your Holy Spirit, these words indeed will fall on deaf ears. These words will not be captured with the beauty that they were designed to give us. But Lord, we're asking for your help this morning Speak to us in and through your word, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Paul doesn't waste any time here. Paul never wastes time. He throws down the gauntlet, 
and he, he wants to interject a point of clarity. He wants to remind us, and look back, look here at the text. He says, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. See, Paul's anticipating an objection. He's anticipating a response by this young church in Ephesus. Remember, it's probably seven, eight years old by this point. And, 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 the, anticip- and, and the question could be something like this, and it's something that we may articulate as well. You know, Pastor Paul, if the Word of God, if doctrine, the law, if it's causing so much division and unrest, let's just focus on other things. Let's just talk about peace. Who can argue with peace, right? Let, let, let's, let's start a marriage ministry. Nothing wrong with marriage ministries. We have one. Let's do some mercy ministries. Let's do something, let's, but let's not, okay, quibble any more about doctrine and the word and scripture. And, and let's, be, let's, let's be honest, oftentimes in the evangelical church, we can have that same impulse, right? Don't make such a big deal about doctrine. Doctrine divides, Jesus unites. You might have heard that. And in reality, to even say that, though, is to say something incredibly doctrinal. We then have to ask, who is this Jesus, right? (laughs) Tell me about him. How do we know about him? Well, we know about him through the word. But Paul is going to dispel us of that notion in this text. See, the problem in the church in Ephesus, the problem in the church in Four Oaks, the problem in the church in the world really doesn't have anything to do with the word of God. There's nothing defective about the word. There's nothing defective about the law or by doctrine. The problem is that we're defective, right? The problem is with people. And so Paul wants to address this head on. And, and he does this, we're going we're to draw this out with three questions, okay? And here are the three questions, they'll be our three points. Number one, what exactly is the law? What, what is Paul talking about here? Number two, how are we to use it? And you're telling us how not to use it, but how, how are we to use it? And then thirdly, why is all this so important? What's, what's the pressing spiritual doctrinal matter? So that's where we're going this morning. What exactly is the law? Now, in the New Testament, the Old Testament is sometimes spoken of, or Old Testament law is sometimes spoken of in a very narrow sense, okay? And, and when I say in a narrow sense, I'm meaning primarily in terms of what we would call the Mosaic law, those laws that were given to the government and society to order life, or those laws that were given to the priesthood to order the sacrificial system. And Paul and the other scripture writers make a clear and compelling point over and over and over again that those particular laws, okay, are no longer binding in the same way that they were in the Old Testament. Um, that, in fact, Christ had fulfilled those laws. So for a couple of examples, in the church in Galatia, for instance, there was a group of Jewish Christians who were telling Gentile Christians you have to be circumcised, which was a part of the ceremonial law. You have to be circumcised in order to have fellowship with us. So, so you may be a Christian, but we're like super spiritual Christians. And Paul really castigates them for this. He says, this is, this is not in accordance with the steps of the gospel, living in truth in line with with the truth of the gospel. 
we no longer have to abide by those ceremonial laws in the same way they're fulfilled in Christ. For example, in Hebrews, where there were still Jewish Christians who were looking to the sacrificial system and the shedding of blood of bulls and goats to say, this is what we still need to be doing as, as Christians. It's fine that we have Jesus, but we have to have Jesus plus. And again, the writer of Hebrews says, may it never be, right? Jesus is our great high priest. He has fulfilled those laws. And so sometimes, okay, when we read in the New Testament, um, these sort of negative connotations or words for the law, it's oftentimes or usually referring to the Mosaic law. But there are other times in the New Testament where the law that is being referred to um, is much broader, what we would call the moral law. In other words, it's the law as sort of summarized by Jesus. Remember when, when the man came and said, you know, what is the greatest commandments? And Jesus says, what, what do you say? And he said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? You have answered correctly. Now go and do likewise. And so those two commandments, the two greatest commandments, are what we would call the moral law. And they are sort of operationalized in what we have as the Ten Commandments. And so when you read the Ten Commandments, what is called the first table, the first four laws all pertain to how do we love God? How do we worship God? The second table, laws five through ten, have to do with how do we love one another? And that's clearly what Paul has in, in mind here, God's moral law. And there's several reasons for that, but one of them, and we're going to unpack this more here shortly, is that when you read this list of vices, okay, and let's be honest, like it's not for the faint-hearted, right? The ungodly and the profane and the man-stealer and the adulterer, and we're just like, whoa, Paul is really going at it here, right? If you, when you track this list of sins and vices, you will find, and we'll look at this in a minute, how it actually corresponds perfectly to, to the Ten Commandments. It, it, it moves us through who we are in relationship to God, who we are in relationship to one another. And so Paul has in mind here the moral law. And here's what we want to say about this at this point. Because a lot of times, particularly in, in evangelical circles, the law sort of takes on this nasty connotation, or at least a negative connotation, we're not people of law, we're people of, of grace. But here's what we want to say about this at this point. The moral law is simply, church, the principles and sum of the rest of the law. The, new, the, the law in this way is good. It's the sum of what God requires of us and asks of us as believers. And the reason it is good is because it is a reflection of his holiness and of his character. And Paul is going to make it very clear to us there is nothing wrong with this law. In fact, it is good if it is used in the right way. And we want to ask, well, how is that? And that's our second point. Here we go. How do we use it? Now, if you look back at the text, verse 9, it says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down. That word laid down means to strategically situate. So in other words, God is not just willy-nilly giving us his law. 
God is not simply saying, I know that you guys want to have a good time, okay? Make more friends, have more fun, okay? And so what I'm aiming to do is to make your life as miserable as possible, okay? That's, that's, we're going to find that's the furthest thing from the truth. But what it does tell us at this point is that God has laid down or, strict or strategically situated the law to do three primary things that we're going to see in this text, okay? So these are kind of three sub-points under how do we use it. And these come from Calvin and the Reformers and others who wrote tomes and volumes about this stuff. But let, let me just kind of mention these because I think this is where we want to spend um, the bulk of our time. One use of the law, one right use of the law, okay, is to restrain evil and the ungodly. So look back at the text. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Now, this does not mean that just because you're a Christian and found righteous in Christ, okay, that you don't need the law. It's just a basic point, okay, that if you and I weren't sinners, guess what? We wouldn't need the law. When, 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 when we get to heaven one day, when we are etern- eternally existing face-to-face with Christ, we are going to think and act in accordance perfectly with who he is. You could say that, that in, in a sense, God's law, Jesus' law will be written on our hearts perfectly. We will not be able to sin. Okay, We will not be able to sin. But for now, in this life, guess what? Not just you and I as Christians, but the culture and the world need the law. And if you don't believe me, have you ever been up here at the intersection of Velda, Derry, and Cary Forest when a storm goes out and that becomes a four-way stop? Have you ever experienced that? There's a power outage. It's like we've been transported to the era of the judges, right? Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. I remember one, one, one time, this is a number of years ago, I, I came by that intersection. The power had gone out. It was mass bedlam, okay, as everybody was doing whatever they wanted to do. And there was, a, there was a former youth group member who was out there in the middle of the road directing traffic. Now understand, not as a law enforcement officer, okay? not as a policeman, but like as a college student. And I was like, do we get this guy a vest or what, you know, what are we doing here? But here's what was amazing. Not only was he directing traffic, but everybody was doing what he said. It was just like, it's like see, we naturally, we naturally gravitate right, to this idea that we need some parameters, we need some boundaries. Even from the earliest age, children will just push, 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 because they they intuitively know, I need need some parameters around me. I need something to sort of hem me in. And in the same way, the law is good. We need law. Yes, it can be abused, it can be ministered in, in the wrong way, but fundamentally, that's a problem with us, not a problem with the law. So number one, restrain evil and the ungodly. A second biblical use of the law is what we would call a sanctifying guide for believers. Now, Peter told us something, and this is not hyperbole. He said, and now he's speaking to Christians here. Now, this is an intramural conversation. Everybody hear, hear me, okay? This is an intramural conversation for God's people related to this one. Peter says, without holiness, Christian, you will not see God. And we may say, but how is that possible, Pastor Paul? I mean, 
aren't we justified by faith? Aren't we saved by grace, not by works of the law? And to which we say absolutely 100%. We are to never, ever use the law as a standard or mode or means to salvation. Yet, what we find unequivocally all throughout the New Testament is this idea that if your heart has been regenerated as a believer, if, you, if your identity is now firmly and fully in Christ, you will experience, sometimes slowly, sometimes incrementally, but nonetheless, assuredly, this gradual process of God polishing his image in you. And, and sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. Let's be honest, sometimes it's one step forward and three back. But it's kind of like that trend line, okay? You see on one of those weight loss apps, and like you kind of go up and down, up and down, up and down. Over the course of time, you want to be able to say, God, by his grace, is growing me more into his image. That is a right use of the law. In fact, let me just say this. A wanton disregard or disdain for the word of God, the law of God, a, a wanton disregard or deliberate, ongoing, what I call high-handed disobedience of I don't care, I've got my uh, eternal security card in the back pocket, I can do whatever I want. Christian, that's a dangerous place to be. And in those places, there are, the scriptures more times than not warn people in those circumstances versus seeking to give them assurance. Because that's not what Christians do. That's not the sanctifying work of the Spirit alive in your heart and mind. That's why the Christian life is just one day after another of repentance, confession, coming before the Lord. But see, that's not what the false teachers were doing. That's not the way they were using the law. They weren't pointing people to God through his word. They were trying to convert people to their particular thinking about a whole host of issues, issues that were not addressed directly in Scripture. Now, Kent Hughes says something interesting about this. Now, play along. This is in a profound statement. He says... The church had become <clears throat> their unreached people group. And that is a dangerous thing. Do you know what I mean by that when, when he says the church can become your unreached people group? In other words, you can, you can look. You, yes, we're all Christians, Pastor Paul. Yes, we're all Christians. And yes, we all believe the gospel. That's fine. But if we really all agreed on politics, or if we all agreed on how to school our children, or if we all agreed on how to steward our finances, and by all agreed, I mean all agree with me, right? That's how that works. Then, 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 then we would be a much more spiritually mature, stable, sound kind of congregation. Let me just give you a few examples. I have 10. Can I give you a few? Okay. Here's, here, here's one. God calls us, and this is a principle in scripture, to shepherd our children. Parents, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. When you go to the Old Testament, the New Testament, God has uniquely commissioned you to do that. At the end of your parenting days, you can't look up and say, well, it's so-and-so's fault that I didn't do this. No, no, it's a responsibility you bear. That's a principle. But 
the scriptures don't really specify exactly what kind of practice, do they? And so when it comes to something like schooling, um, some of us are all in on homeschool or private school or Christian school or public school for various reasons. And, and it's so easy to look down on other Christians who aren't doing it the way you think we ought to be doing it and to pass judgment, to use it as a standard of spirituality. That is a false, wrong use of the law. That's what the teachers in Ephesus were doing. It was with other issues, but it was the same dynamic. Take, for example, financial stewardship. It is a principle in Scripture that you be generous both in your giving and your time and your service. But, but some of us are going to, you know, some of you will, will die on the hill of a particular financial system and say, unless you do it this way, you are not managing money God's way. Whether it has to do with debt, whether it has to do with government money, you name it, right? One more. Politics is another, Right? And we can become incredibly dogmatic about particular political parties or positions. And, and what I'm about to say does not negate the idea that we should have convictions about these things. Absolutely. The question is, how do we have those with other Christians? How do we express those? Pastor Dave Harvey, who used to minister here for a number of years, and Kim are doing well down in, down in um, South Florida. But he wrote a blog post about that this week that I'm going to quote from, it is incredibly profound. I want you to hear this. He's not talking about not having opinions. He's talking about how do we live those out principally as believers. Here's what he says. I wish I could find a way to explain to every parent I know that parents with dogmatic political opinions live at a relational disadvantage. I don't mean political principles, okay? Talking about positions. What is gained by political dogmatism is never worth what it costs in relational peace. In the long run, feeling right is far less enriching than remaining connected to your voting age kids. Guys, we're, we're, we're in a position where there is a great generational cultural divide, even among conservative evangelicals over these very things. And while there are certain biblical principles that equate to certain political realities that we want to, we, we, we course that we're going to stand firm on, whether it's issues of sexuality or right to life or racism or a whole host of things, how we do those, how we work those out need to be a measure of grace need to be a measure of not dogmatism. We need to be firm in the principles, but at times flexible in practice. You see, in the, in the teachers in Ephesus, we're doing it exactly the, the other way, right? There were no real principles here, except disagree with us. Do what we say. Adopt our particular interpretation of these particular biblical passages. And see, when we treat the law in this way, church, we miss a golden, amazing, spirit-filled opportunity for the law to perform its most important work. And that's the third one. And that's that law is serves, should serve as a schoolmaster for us. Let me read Galatians 
So then, this is Paul writing, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that word guardian, it literally means taskmaster or schoolmaster. Okay, I, I, I like to think of Little House on the Prairie where the teacher who is up front with the ruler, not Miss Beadle, of course, but the other teachers, right? And, and slapping students' wrists, okay, every time they, they miss a wrong answer. That, that's, that's the image here, right? And, and Paul says that's actually what the law is supposed to do with us. It is supposed to spank us. It is supposed to hammer us press upon us. And, and, and listen, here's how this happens. So, so look back at this text for a second. We've, we've been avoiding it till now, but we're going we're gonna to hit, hit on some important things. Look at this murderer's row of biblical vices and sins that Paul takes us through. The first three are actually found in pairs, and they all deal with our fundamental posture and relationship to God himself. Okay, look at verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Now listen, here's the, here's the first pair. But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Paul's just like, I mean, you, I mean, you have, if nothing else, you have to admire his courage, Right? He, he, goes, he goes right for it. Then his next list are actually all extreme manifestations of the commandments five through nine. And, and again, Paul doesn't just fly above the surface of these commandments. He goes to their worst manifestations. Let's look back at the text. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, okay, For murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. I mean, like, this isn't just like being, like, talking back to mom and dad. It's like, did you hit mom and dad today? Okay. Did you strike them? Not just did you steal your brother's toy, but did you actually steal your brother and sell him to... I mean, you get the... Paul's purposefully doing this. And, and, and if we're not careful, we're very tempted to say, whew, thank goodness, right? I'm bad, Pastor Paul, but ooh, that's, that, I'm not that bad. To which Paul then throws in this last little phrase. And he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, whatever sin you happen to commit. It's Paul's way of saying that all sin comes from the same soil. See, now, what your tree or crop of unfaithfulness or sinfulness looks like, that may vary depending upon circumstances and background and what era of time that you lived in. But when we examine, all of us, our hearts in light of this passage, in light of these moral laws, in light of these manifestations, if we are all brutally honest, we are absolutely crushed under them, aren't we? We will absolutely wilt. Particularly when we understand when, when Jesus says, you know, when you heard it said, okay, do not, do not murder your brother. I say if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You know, you, you've heard it said this, and he kind of extrapolates 
That's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's, he's pushing us all to, to bring our life and our heart and our actions full frontal into the light, into the glory of the gospel of God, and as a result, be absolutely crushed. Luther puts it this way. He's speaking about the law. It is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. For it shows them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring Christ. It's in this sense that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Christian, are you feeling worn down, hammered, in despair, discouraged, guilt-ridden? If you've rightly understood that, then you and I will run to Christ. The point is not to ignore the law. And again, oftentimes you might hear that in teaching, evangelical teaching. Pastor Paul, come on. We're just beaten up by the law so much. We feel down and discouraged. Nobody needs to tell us we're sinful. We know we're sinful. Just kind of just give us some, give us a pep talk, right? Give us some good news. Here's the, here's the issue, Christian. Without the bad news, the good news means nothing. If, if you and I are not constantly reminded in light of God's law just how seriously we fall short, then the good news will not be good news. It might be helpful news. It might be like, like three tips for a better marriage and financial health, but it won't be good news. See, when, when the Bible tells us that we are saved, saved by grace through faith, we have to ask, saved from what? And unless Paul is telling us we are being confronted by the law, unless we are spending some time in the schoolhouse. Now understand, Christian, we're not living in the schoolhouse. Although those of you who are doing virtual schooling from home, you're living in the schoolhouse, right? Sleeping in the schoolhouse. We get it. But we don't live, spiritually speaking, in the schoolhouse. We visit it so that we might then pass on through and run to Christ. Why is this so important? This is our last point. Paul says this is so important, verse 10, is because it is contrary to sound doctrine. Now that word for sound, it literally means healthy. And what's interesting about that word healthy, it's a medical term. It's found two other times in the New Testament. One of those is in the Gospel of Luke. And just as a sidebar, um, a lot of scholars believe that because Luke was a companion to Paul and Paul is dictating his letters for someone else to write, Luke was probably that person. And Paul is talking about bad doctrine, sick doctrine, and Luke's like, sounds like healthy doctrine, right? So he, he, he puts this word healthy doctrine as opposed to sick. And it says in whatever else is contrary, or in that word is against or antithetical to sound doctrine. In other words, here, here's, what, here's what Paul is wanting to emphasize to us. There is a doctrine that gives life, that is healthy. And then there is a doctrine that kills and that takes away life. 
And one of the ways that Paul says doctrine takes away life, please hear this, is that it's separated from practice. See, I want you to notice, and we're going to see this over and over in 1 Timothy, how Paul ties the gospel to both right behavior and practice and right theology. He's going to talk in a couple of weeks about apostasy. And we say, what what is apostasy? Guys, apostasy is not the same thing as being an unbeliever. The world is full of unbelievers, those who have not professed faith in Christ, but have never professed faith in Christ. An apostate is a special category of unbeliever. It's someone who has professed Christ. Maybe they've been baptized. Maybe they've taken communion. Maybe they've come to Sunday school. Maybe they've grown up in the church. But at some point in their life, they fall away. They, they live in denial of the gospel. It was, that was a phase. That was, that was just something that I did, you know, when I was a teenager and youth camp and all those sorts of things. Or that, that was something I did to sort of kind of help, help myself along when we were first married or I was going to meet somebody to get married. But, but fundamentally, it, does, it plays no primary role in my life. And we have to ask, how does that happen? How does apostasy happen? Let me tell you, I think, how apostasy doesn't happen. It's not as if one day you have the peace and the love of the Holy Spirit in your heart and you are reading his word and you are absorbing his word and God is blessing your marriage and your parenting and your work. And then one morning you wake up and say, hmm, I never read that verse before in that way. I wonder if it means X. And that begins this process of unraveling your theology and you end up changing your mind and then falling away. Guys, that's not how apostasy works. It's actually the reverse. See, if you look back at verse 5 for a second, Paul says this last time, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, here is the normal path to apostasy. We stop guarding our heart. We no longer have a clear conscience. We stop watching both our life and our doctrine. And slowly, imperceptibly sometimes, what happens over time is, the, is that casing around our heart becomes harder and harder. And we learn to live with a seared conscience. And we learn to just kind of avoid those areas that we know are just personal struggles with sin. I'm going to just kind of tiptoe around those. I'm going to suppress those. But over time, that moral degeneration begins to happen in our soul. Until one day, thinking and feeling turns into action. And so here's what happens. We, versus changing, versus changing our behavior to meet our changing theology, we change our theology to meet our drifting behavior. We move the goalpost. We, we begin to ask questions like, hmm, did, did God really, did he really say that? Did, did, is, is that the way we're supposed to understand? I mean, that's just like a first century thing, Pastor Paul, right? This, all this stuff about sexuality or gender or what kind of marriage we're supposed to have. See, it happens to accommodate aberrant behavior. Because there have been several very, very high-profile 
evangelical leaders in the past few years who've had what we would kind of call sudden shifts, right? Or a change of thinking theologically related to gender or sexuality or marriage or to the atonement or a whole host of other things. But what you often find way after the fact, of course, is that there's always some sort of personal crisis going on for that family or that person. Something's happening with a child. Something's happening with a spouse. Something's happening with a friend. Something's happening in their own soul. Some discouragement, some point of despair. And this is not to make light of those. Those are pastorally excruciating. And we need to enter those places and, and, and handle them with care. But these personal crises lead to a shifting of theology to accommodate where I now find myself morally. That's how apostasy happens. We begin to sear our conscience and no longer pursue out of a pure heart and a sincere faith. This is the way Kent Hughes says this. They had ceased to maintain purity of heart and a clear conscience. I've seen this happen in the lives and walk of friends who were once fellow soldiers but failed to keep their hearts clean, then fell away and now believe doctrines contradictory to the gospel. When you fail to guard your conscience, you become open to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and thus fall prey to fanciful theology and heresy. The battle for orthodoxy is lost not only in the head, please hear this, but in the heart. Apostasy begins at the very deepest level when we trample our conscience. Guys, what's the point of all that? Guys, if you want to be doctrinally faithful, if you want to be sound in your theology, don't just go order Calvin's Institutes and read those. Although, order Calvin's Institutes and read those. We have a copy out on our bookshelf, okay, right outside. It's not an either or. Read your Calvin by all means, but then watch your life. See, this is, what, this is what Paul is telling Timothy over and over again. Yes, watch your doctrine, but Timothy, what? Watch your life closely. Which is why the chief task of the Christian on a daily basis is repent, repent, repent. The chief task is not Ignore the word of God because it pierces your soul. It's face the word of God so that you can confess your sins and repent and turn and run to Christ. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. This is why he says, Timothy, don't separate life and doctrine like these false teachers. They are full of fanciful notions and theology and doctrine, but they're running roughshod over their own conscience. Christian, if you're feeling discouraged today, if you're feeling downtrodden, despairing, Paul holds out this last piece of good news, and it's the best. Look back at verse 10. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, listen, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted... Here is where Paul wants us to run this morning. Those, the, way, the way that 
it's interpreted here of the, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Those are all genitives possession. Here's, here's the literal rendering of it. God's glorious gospel. Paul says, run to that. God's glorious gospel. See, the gospel is simply this. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Luther, who we just quoted, calls this the great exchange. And it's so simple, so profound, we want to say it can't possibly be true. It's just like the false teachers. There has to be something else. There has to be some sort of secret knowledge. There has to be some sort of conspiracy. There has to be some sort of story behind the story. We are just called to believe the bare gospel and the word of God. And in coming face to face with the law, not disregarding the law, but letting it squash us so that we can run to Christ, which is the central purpose of the law, to lead us back to Jesus who gave himself up for you. Will you trust and place your faith in him? Let's pray.